I will tell you that after every performance, uh, either live or virtual, people come up to me and they say, you know, you were talking about your great-grandmother, but that was my great-grandmother too. Welcome to Bereaved But Still Me, a podcast formerly known as Heart to Heart with Michael. Our purpose is to empower members of the bereaved community. Over the years, I have said many times that we are distillations of those who came before us. As such, we owe it to them to fashion and hold on to their memories, as we remember our loved ones, so they will become known to those who meet them now for the first time while they're no longer with us. It is our obligation and our opportunity to keep them as alive as our memories of them and to share them with those who never knew them in life. In today's program, Loss, Putting the Shards of Our Lives Together with Evan Kent, we'll see a unique example of how this can be done through music, song, and storytelling. Our guest, Evan Kent, earned his doctorate in music education from Boston University in 2014. His doctoral research examined how music at Jewish summer camps in North America assists the development of Jewish identity. For 25 years, Evan was the cantor at Temple Isaiah in Los Angeles. He is currently on the faculty of Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem, where he teaches liturgy and sacred music. Evan was also a member of the editorial committee for the new reform high holiday prayer book, Mishkan Hanefesh. Evan's one-man show, Shards, Putting the Pieces Together, has been presented in Jerusalem, Prague, and throughout the United States. Shards has now been presented virtually due to COVID-19. When not singing, acting, or teaching, Evan is an avid runner, having completed a dozen marathons, many half marathons, and ultra marathons. Today we'll discover how a person can use music to deal with loss. How did one man's epiphany affect the decision to move across the globe? What do our stories about our past have to do with who we are now? How can listening to another person's personal history help us to understand our own grief, our loss, and our identity? Evan, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you. It's really great being here. Thank you for having me. Please tell me about your passion for music. Have you always loved music? What made you choose to earn a PhD in music? Um, I've always loved music. I actually started out life as a violinist, starting playing uh, in third grade and eventually then started singing. But my road to earning a doctorate in music and music education was actually... Um, Really, because when I knew I was going to be moving to Israel, when that was sort of part of my plan, I knew that I would be teaching at Hebrew Union College. And I knew that based on the Israeli academic system, that having Cantor in front of your name gave you a certain amount of clout or cachet. But earning a doctorate even was more important here in Israel because of the way the academic system is formulated. But it also was a lifelong goal to sort of devote myself to, to music, uh, to music education, and also to uh, research. I think I'm just a naturally uh, questioning person, always looking for answers, uh, always looking for questions, which is, of course, a very Jewish occupation. Absolutely. And my doctoral work uh, was really sort of the, the culmination of, of lots of aspects of my life, of looking, looking for answers and uh, finding more questions. We have almost the exact same roots in music, only I'm a total failure. I, third grade, had the same violin and scratched out the same. Probably, we probably used the same books. Happily for music, I went in completely other, other <laughs> way and 
and, and music is much better for it. But I think music is also better for it that you stayed with it. And I, that's something I think as the program progresses, we're going to appreciate that more and more. Tell me a little bit about your theater experience because it all sort of ties together that way. My earliest theatrical experience uh, is that in uh, preschool, preschool graduation, I <laughs> sang I'm a Little Teapot. And, <laughs> and, and I uh, haven't. You're, you're like my brother. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, Michael, I don't know anybody else, uh, you know, uh, who has actually ever sung I'm a Little Teapot at preschool graduation, but it, it's you. you. And you know all I remember is the applause the afterwards and thinking, well, this is sort of cool. Um, I, I had done other theater sort of, you know, nominally through grade school. And then, um, I, I would have to say that it wasn't so much theater, but it was the act of performing, um, the act of singing, of playing, of, of being on stage, but the act of sort of the, the, the feeling that you get when you're, you've give, you're giving something to an audience and the audience is giving you something back. And I'm very fortunate that I ended up a, as a singer and then as a cantor and now as an actor and storyteller because it is all sort of part of the same whole where you are uh, sharing with an audience and feeling that sort of circular energy that you get when an audience uh, is, is with you in the moment of performing. I think that's probably one of the reasons that I'm sitting in front of my microphone right now. My roots in communications actually started in college for real and doing radio. And this is a very similar thing, but a lot less scary because radio is live. Now, I know that you really embrace storytelling, and that is an important part of your one-man show. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that and how storytelling is a significant part of your own life? I became very aware of the power of storytelling. I will tell you, the first time I really became aware of the power of storytelling was when I was uh First, when I first took the job at Temple Isaiah in Los Angeles, and um, this was 1988 when I began my 25 years of the, as being a cantor there at the synagogue. And I would uh, once a month or maybe twice a month, I don't remember at this point, um, I worked with a group of volunteers that oh, we would prepare brunches mm -hmm. for AIDS patients who were day patients at, uh, at the county hospitals, um, mostly getting infusions and things like that. This was the sort of the heights of the AIDS uh, pandemic. And standing around sort of the tables in the temple kitchen and preparing meals and listening to people talk about their families and about their own lives mm -hmm. uh, is really a form of storytelling. Sure, and sure. I realized that these stories that we were sharing are really just sort of culminations of stories that um, generations of, of, of my family had told standing in kitchens, my grandparents, <laughs> my great-grandparents. And um, that was really, I think, the first moment that I understood the power of sharing each other's stories. Um, uh, there's a very well-known doctor out of, I believe, out of Harvard, um, who wrote a book called The Kitchen Table Wisdom, and it's really about the power of the stories that we share with each other and the power of these stories through the generations. The stories in my own show, in my own show, which is entitled Shards, are true-to-life stories. That's the kind of storytelling that I do. Mm -hmm. In Jewish tradition, we really have uh, three or four types of storytelling. We have uh, uh, Talmudic stories, 
uh, we have midrashic stories, we have folk tales or folklore, and then the fourth category is sort of true life stories. And those are the stories that I tell, which are stories, sort of slice of life stories, mm -hmm. um, that then you realize as you as the audience is listening to the story that they are hearing uh, your story, but they also are generalizing to their own life. And those are the kind of stories that I tell. They're sometimes humorous, sometimes very poignant, sometimes sad, but always uh, very, very deeply effective. Are they morality stories? Do they teach us? Um, I do how not to live? teach. I, I don't teach a morality story. What I do is the stories that I tell always ask people to sort of, um, I don't ask them to do anything, actually. I just tell the story. But what most audiences do is reflect upon their own lives as they're listening to the stories. That's the power of storytelling, uh, which is different than a monologue. I don't play a character. Yeah. I am usually just myself, and I'm telling these stories. And what it allows people to do is to sort of, as I'm telling the story, to sort of, uh, sort of take the story in and sort of uh, try to understand or sort of deposit upon themselves and understand the story in terms of their own lives. You are listening to Bereaved But Still Me. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our program, please send an email to Michael Lieben at michael at bereavedbutstillme.com. That's michael at bereavedbutstillme.com. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. Evan, I don't know a lot of people who can honestly say that they've experienced an epiphany, but you have. So tell us about that. I went to Manhattan School of Music, and um, one day, one of my theory professors said, you know, I'm the, uh, I'm the music director at a church up in Inwood, which is sort of the tip of Manhattan. And we're looking for somebody to be a soloist. Would you like to be a soloist at the church? And I said, well, sure. And I sang, you know, three masses a Sunday for about three or four, three years at least. And um, at one point, I, I realized sort of the power of that liturgical music had. People would come up to me after this mass. Listen, I'm a, I'm a, a nice Jewish boy from Long Island, um, and I'm singing mass <laughs> for the Catholics. All? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm singing mass for the Catholics, and people would come up to me and say, this is the most beautiful Easter of my life, or when you sing, it's like the angels singing. And I, I, I didn't really understand. Before that, I don't think I understood the power of music in uh, a sacred setting, I, the power of sort of music and sacred words in a sacred setting. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, you know, I, I, I will add sort of a uh, that, you know, they say in New York, you can have a good job, a good relationship and a good apartment. But at any given time, you can have only two out of the three. Well, I had none out of the three. I had uh, a relationship that was falling apart. I had a really terribly small apartment and I hated my job. And I, I came to church. It was Good Friday. And I'm singing the Litany of Saints, um, which really is sort of the introduction to the Good Friday service. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking there's something wrong with this picture. Why am I here leading these you know, thousands of Catholics in this mass? 
And I said to myself, if there's a way out of this, please show me how. And I began chanting, Mary, Mother of God, pray for us. And at that moment, and this is, this is the truth. I mean, I couldn't make this up if I wanted to. I really felt transcendent. I felt as if I were above the altar of the church. And at that moment, I knew what I had to do. And that was to apply to become a cantor. Now, people had said to me, you know, you sing beautifully, you're Jewish, you, you, you grew up in the reform movement, you would be a fabulous cantor, you should go to Hebrew Union College. And I thought, well, why don't I just become a dentist? Because that sounds about as horrible as becoming a cantor. And the <laughs> truth was that I knew nothing really about becoming a cantor. Um, I knew a lot about dentists, but, and I thought, um, and then it was uh, Holy Week and it was Passover, and I literally applied to HUC. I was accepted a few weeks later, and that was the beginning of my career in the Jewish community, a career that went on for uh, 25 years at the synagogue, uh, simultaneous to my uh, service to the congregation in Los Angeles. I also taught at our seminary at Hebrew Union College in Los Angeles, and now in Jerusalem, I teach at our campus here. I teach our first year cantorial students. But I have great reverence, great thankfulness to the Catholic Church because without that experience, I don't know if I ever would have found sort of this next part of my own path. And um, it really, I, I really do believe um, that there is moments, moments of godliness uh, that we are sometimes not even aware of that they will, you know, it, it was it was a total surprise. I, I was in a miserable situation. I had to leave mass. And I said, literally prayed, if there's a way out of this, please show me a way. And um, I had a true moment of epiphany. So I'm very grateful. Tell me about your decision to move here. I mean, you left the Golden of Medina, you had everything. Or could have had everything. You know, in my show, a character that keeps reappearing and sort of asks me questions is uh, Shabbat Hamalka, the Sabbath queen. And at one point, um, Shabbat Hamalka says, you know, why did you do this? Why did you why did you come to Israel? And the, the reason is um, I, I'm a lifelong uh, liberal Zionist. I grew up uh, in the sort of the the in NIFTI, the National Federation of Temple Youth. I went to Jewish summer camp. Um, my parents were very pro-Israel. My grandparents and great-grandparents were even pro-Israel. And I think that it was just something that sort of clicked with me. When I was in cantorial school, the director of the school at the time, uh, Dr. Larry Hoffman, organized a group of trips for cantorial students to come to Israel mm -hmm. to really, this was very early on, this is 1984, to sp literally spread the word of Reform Judaism uh, through secular kibbutz, the secular kibbutzim, to sort of say that what you are doing is very similar to what Reform Jews do. And I think seeing Israel uh, as, as, a, as a student, as a potential, as a cantorial student, uh, started to solidify the concept of Israel. I also became bar mitzvah here in 1972, which was not something that people did. Why my parents decided to do that, I don't know. But Israel was always a part of my life. And I will say that the, the blue and white JNF box that my great-grandmother had in her apartment mm -hmm. um, was also an influence. I mean, it was always, 
you know, it was, you know, put some coins in the box for Israel. My mother was always going to like youth aliyah lunches, which I always <laughs> thought was just one word, a youth aliyah lunch. I didn't know it was actually three separate words. And <laughs> it, it, Israel was a central part of my life. And, and then um, um, my husband and I took uh, successive sabbaticals here in Israel. Um, and uh, eventually we bought an apartment uh, we sold that apartment, we bought another apartment, and it has become our lives. I mean, um, Israel is Israel is an amazing place. Um, it has lots of problems, lots of difficulty. It is not easy, but I always say that I am part of the greatest experiment ever in Jewish history, and that is the recreation of a Jewish homeland. Yep, um, totally agree. And I, I understand that this is not the this is not the perfect place. But by my being here, I hope to uh, hope to make Israel a better place. Um, that's really what my hope is. Is it forever? I don't know. You know, I, I know people that have made Aliyah, you know, moved to Israel and then moved back. I, I think that um, as time moves on, as we get a little older, I don't know what the future will be. But um, right now it's home. No, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think and, I, and I, again, Everything that you're saying here, I, I hear my my voice. I've I have also said of myself that I've been fortunate to live in the two greatest political experiments of history, and one of them is self-rule in the United States, and the other one is the reestablishment of the Jewish homeland in its land. And you're right, nothing is perfect, and it, and it, some days you you know it's difficult, and you say, "Why am I here? What have I done?" And and then you realize that's exactly why I'm here. That's exactly what I'm doing is because it makes no sense. It's because it's the most difficult thing you can think of doing. Um, but we do these things because they're hard. And we do these things because they are, they touch our soul in a way that, that it's difficult to explain. And you've said it very beautifully. And, and thank you so much because Lord knows I've spent a lot of time trying to explain myself to, to myself and people who ask me the exact same question. Why are you doing this? I mean, there are some days, you know, like this morning I went, went out running and um, I, it's like, whoa, I'm, I'm at the walls of the old city, which is like, well, that's pretty, pretty darn cool. Um, Absolutely. and some days, and some days I, some, some days I think, oh, I'm at the walls of the old city. So, you know, it's, it's some days it's very cool. And some days it's, oh, walls of the old city. So well, I, um, I have a term for that. I've, I've called that a divine complacence. I love that divine complacence. That's a brilliant term. And, yeah. and so there's that duality right there that just sort of hits you, you know, on both sides of the face at the same time. And Michael, I think if you don't have divine complacency, you might end up sort of have, having Jerusalem syndrome and think you're some sort of modern day prophet, which I think is a little more severe of a diagnosis. So, so. you're absolutely right. Better, better mind than that. I, I agree. I agree. Now, I have to ask you this because this program is, is about grief. What grief or loss have you suffered in your life? And I'm going to leave grief open or a loss open to all sorts of things, not only people, but also ideas and ideals, things that you may have left behind in the coming here. There are two great griefs in my life. The first is um, not having met my grandfather until I was 24 years old. Oh, uh, my father and my grandfather were estranged from when my father was an infant till 42 or 45 years later. And I first met my grandfather in my first year of cantorial school. Wow. 
And by the time I had graduated and was ordained four years later, my grandfather had died. So, oh, so I, only, I, I only had a grandfather for four years. That is sort of a grief. In some ways, it's, uh, it's almost biblical. It's sort of like, you know, sort of what these biblical characters, especially in Genesis, do to each other, these, these sort of fractured <laughs> families, that what could have my life had been like if I had had a, a grandfather? Um, and, and the second grief is, um, and actually I'm, I'm, writing, I'm writing about this right now in a story. I'm preparing a, a, a show for Passover, uh, Shards, the Passover edition. I had a very close friend that I worked with in my uncle's law firm. Uh, her name was Ellen Mason. I was in music school at the time. She was getting her doctorate in psychology. And when I, I knew her for many years, and then I moved to Los Angeles. And uh, the year after I moved to Los Angeles, she died of ovarian cancer. Um, we, she, was, she was like a, a big sister. She was like a guardian angel. Um, uh, she wasn't a girlfriend. It was a you know, very platonic relationship. But we were very, very close, did a lot of stuff together. And I, every year when her York site comes around, the anniversary of her death, I'm very aware that I have this sort of truncated adult relationship that where would we both be so many years later? Would she have been a, a, a well-known uh, child psychologist? Would she be married? Would she have children? Would she, what would she think of my life? Would she have come and visited us in Israel? What would we have been like, not as as 30-year-olds, but what would we have been like as 60-year-olds? And that is only something I can imagine. Um, the grief that I have in my own show, that I represent in my own show, um, my grandparents all died. My grandparents and great-parents, grand grandparents all died when I was young. So in my show, I've created or recreated conversations with them that I never really had, that I never could have had with them as adults. For example, expressing my love for them as an adult. As a child, the love you express for them is very different. But to be able to ask them questions you could have never asked them, that is grief that I never came to terms with because I didn't even know how to put a label on it. But I will say through the gift of storytelling, I've been able to do things on stage that I could have never, ever imagined. Now, my show is not therapy. I don't bring my own therapy to stage. But what I do do is bring stories to life that other people in the audience are also wondering about. Where is my grandmother now? What could I ask her if I could? It's like re-encountering these members of my family. It is really like a that. gift. It is a gift. It's very profound. I spend a lot of time sitting and crying because these are relationships that I wish I had known better. And we don't. We can only imagine what they could have been. I will tell you that after every performance, uh, either live or virtual, people come up to me and they say, you know, you were talking about your great-grandmother, but that was my great-grandmother too. When I finish a show, I'm physically exhausted, but sure. I'm also emotionally exhausted because I have I, I've reconnected with a past that I didn't even know at times it even existed. And people always say to me, well, are the stories true? I say, well, they're as true as my memory can allow them to be true. Um, you know, I did a lot of research. I talked to my mother, talked to my to, to my father to sort of understand their parents, their grandparents, my grandparents and great grandparents better. 
but you know memory is faulty and um, my memory is only as good as as I can make it at the moment so it's it's really it's I consider it a gift I consider every performance to be a gift both for me and hopefully for the audience if you've enjoyed listening to this program please visit our website heartsuniteTheGlobe.org and make a contribution. This program is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to educate, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at congenitalheartdefects.com. For information about CHD, hospitals that treat CHD survivors, summer camps for CHD families, and much, much more. We talked about loss, and we talked about your performance, Shards, and how it's a vehicle that helps others deal with their loss. How did you come up with the idea for Shards, and how did it come to be, I mean, physically, right now, the way it is? So um, we made Aliyah. We moved to Israel in 2013, in July of 2013. And almost exactly a year later, in July of 2014, the Gaza war began. And there were, for the first time in my life, I heard um, uh, air raid sirens and missiles landing within sort of the vicinity of Jerusalem. And I think I suffered as close to something that we might call PTSD as I ever want to in my entire life. There were some days I couldn't get out of bed. Uh, the squealing of uh, motorcycle tires on the street, which sounds a lot like the sirens going off, would have me literally like go falling to the ground. And I was having lunch with a friend of mine and she said, I think you need to speak to somebody. And I ended up walking into an office of a, of a therapist and the first thing he said to me, he said, why are you here? Why did you come move to Israel? And that was a very sort of, I don't think anybody had ever asked me that question. I think I made up lots of reasons, but nobody had ever asked me the question. And what I discovered was, was that I came from a family of immigrants, of sojourners, of wanderers, uh, and that we actually are, as Jews, are a wandering people, truly wandering people. I started sort of writing down some of these narratives that I had heard that I had started to put together. And I eventually said that maybe I said to a friend of mine who's a professional storyteller who actually worked with me on another show. She said, I think you have the beginnings of a show here. And that's how it came to be. It took me about 14 months to write. The show is a wow. musical, so there's original music included. And then I started doing some preview performances and then started taking it out on the road. It's been very, very wonderful to share the, this, this sort of the storytelling adventure with uh, congregations, primarily Jewish congregations across the country. So how do you modify that now? Because with COVID-19, you're doing these online. That's an interesting question. I entered a group of art, for, for, for performing and visual artists out of a organization called Intersection for the Arts in San Francisco, who is having virtual sessions. And sort of like, sort of like how do artists, how are artists, especially performing artists, gonna sort of come out of this? Yeah. And the suggestion was, well, why don't you take your show virtual? And I said, no, 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 I can't do it virtual. It's storytelling, I need to see people's faces. They need to see me. I need to like feel mm -hmm. the energy of the audience. 
And then I said, okay, I'm going to try it. And I sort of started doing like sampler shows, like just, just like 35 minutes for sort of congregations that I was supposed to be at but couldn't. And I realized it actually worked. The energy is different. Um, you're, instead of talking to an audience, you're talking to a screen. And often you don't, you know, in an audience, people sort of are well-behaved. When you're on Zoom, you know, you're looking at somebody and you realize they're going to the refrigerator and grabbing a sandwich. Right. But, <laughs> but it, it is different. And um, it has taught me to sort of adapt the show. It also has taught me a new skill set, how to, how to work video, how to work audio, how to, how to manage lighting, mm -hmm. how to manage production, how to, how to make, be my own production and marketing company. I'm actually working with a production company out of New York City. But um, I do think at some point I will be back on the road. But I, uh, for now, we are all doing this virtually, and I'm not alone. Uh, the arts have suffered very, very substantially during this uh, coronavirus COVID-19 uh, situation. Right. Um, everybody has suffered, but live performance will be one of the last things to return. And I'm happy that I've, I, I feel very blessed that I have been able to find a forum for sharing my stories and sharing uh, my, my songs with audiences all around the world. One of the quality traits of being Jewish is eternal optimism. <laughs> and... <laughs> I, I And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I wish you success with that. I hope you do find a way back to stage. Where can people learn more about your program? Uh, they can find me on Facebook, uh, Evan Kent on Facebook. There are only a few of us. There actually are other Evan Kents. On Instagram, I'm uh, Evan Kent. I'm the only one Evan Kent on Instagram. There are others, but they're imposters. Uh, and then my <laughs> website, which is evankent.com, lists performances, has uh, video and audio clips, and uh, some, you know, reviews and writing about about the show. And before we finish up, share with us the most important lesson that you've learned that might help others deal with their loss or grief in a healthy way. When I was a cantor in the synagogue, I unfortunately um, did many, many funerals. That's part of your job. Yeah, yeah. And people sure. would often ask to me, when will it get better? And what I learned through my own experience, listen, and the experience of you become very close to congregants in a congregation. I mean, people who have been with you, who have traveled with you over a couple of generations. And what I learned is that it doesn't get better, it gets different. Because yeah. if, if the grief diminished totally, that means that the sort of the, the level of love was not there. And I think that when we grieve for those who we love, the love is there. So it gets it gets just gets different. I always say that the letters fade like a, like on a business card. The letters fade a little bit, but the imprint is always there. And um, you know it's very strong. And you never know when when grief hits you. I will tell you that my fondest memory of my friend Ellen Mason was that when we were both down in the dumps, we would go to Orwash's Bakery on the east side and sit and eat raisin pumpernickel rolls. And Ooh. to this day, if I want to sort of revisit the spirit and the love that we had, I will grab a raisin pumpernickel roll. And um, that, is, that is my way of sort of rekindling that friendship and rekindling that love. So it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it, 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 it just gets different. That's what I can sort of leave you with. Well, thank you for that. And thank you so much for coming to the program. Evan Kent, the one-man show is called Shards. 
Uh, everyone should please go and run. Don't walk. Run to the website. Check it out. I have listened <laughs> to some of that music, and it's absolutely beautiful. And it will open your mind, and it will make you think of all your loved ones, and all the good, happy thoughts will come filling through your brain. And and I absolutely promise this. This is a wonderful thing that you're doing. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a joy being here. That concludes this episode of Bereaved But Still Me. I want to thank Evan Kent for sharing his experiences and stories with us. Please join us at the beginning of the month for a brand new podcast. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, iHeartRadio, and anywhere you can normally listen to podcasts. I'll talk with you soon, but until then, please remember, moving forward is not moving away. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you have felt supported in your grief journey. Bereaved But Still Me is a monthly podcast, and a new episode is released on the first Thursday of each month. You can hear our podcast anywhere you normally listen to podcasts at any time. Join us again next month for a brand new episode of Bereaved But Still Me.